to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Andrew Ting is a Malaysian, Chinese, Canadian, American, jack of all trades, but still a master of a few. Over the course of his life, he's had the titles of art textbook writer, website designer, street musician, orchestral cellist, business consultant, painter, novelist, Harvard-educated lawyer, and college professor, to name a few. In our conversation, Andrew speaks with us about his origins, why they made him good at relating to people, and how he manages to be such an accomplished generalist. So here is Andrew Ting. Okay, uh, Andrew Ting, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you here, Andrew. Uh, You and I have known each other a short few months, but uh, everything I know about you and everything that I've experienced, it's all positive stuff. Uh, You are as accomplished as you are humble. And so that combination is uh, fascinating and awesome to me. And so I can't wait to learn about uh, your life story. Great. Cool. So you you are... uh, quite a diverse guy from a, from a background perspective, from an ethnicity perspective, where you've lived. So tell us about your family background uh, and, and walk us through uh, your early childhood and landing in Southern California. Sure. So I took a 23andMe DNA test. Unsurprisingly, it came on 99% Chinese, which is fine. <laughs> Actually, we are an ethnic minority in China. Um, my family left China in 1901, so five generations ago. They come from the province of Fujian, which is on the coast, known for piracy, because it's pretty poor, not very fertile. And actually, my uh, family emigrated to um, East Malaysia, an island called Borneo in 1901, looking for land. And so my parents grew up on a rubber plantation, um, very different from my kids growing up in D.C. They would wake up at 5 a.m., tap the rubber trees, then go to school. Um, East Malaysia is about uh, 90% or so Chinese, overwhelmingly Christian. So um, we all grew up United Methodist. I still go to United Methodist Church every Sunday. So um, my parents met in the village. They got married young, 18, 19 years old. Their honeymoon present was two tickets to uh, England on a student visa. So Malaysia is part of uh, the British Commonwealth. So that's where my dad went to school. And my mom worked as a nurse. Um, When she worked as a nurse, we were there at Windsor, by Windsor Castle, and they actually saw Princess Diana's wedding, which was for them. Yeah, yeah. And um, about 23 years later, we went back to Windsor. We met Mrs. Madigan, their landlady, and we walked around. And my dad actually did construction as a night job to put himself through school. We looked at some of the buildings he put up. That was kind of cool. So after school, um, they had my sister. And then we moved to Canada. Uh, my parents lived there for 11 years. I was born there. And then we moved to Cal- Southern California when I was five. I think the difference from Malaysia to England, to Canada, where it's snowy, to Southern California is getting back into warmer weather. So I mostly grew up in Southern California. What did your parents do to make money when you were uh, in Canada? Uh, so my dad worked in IT, uh, mostly IT hardware. Um, and he worked for a couple companies, then moved to California, worked for Prime Computer. But for 20 odd years, he worked for the University of Southern California, go Trojans, in the IT and facilities department. Very cool. So uh, Southern California had to be culture shock for you a little bit, but you, you were young enough maybe that that change wasn't as big of a deal as it would have been for, say, your parents. 
Yeah. And I've always told my uh, parents very sincerely that no matter what I accomplish in this life as an American, it doesn't really compare to them, right? Going, starting from Malaysia, going to England, going to Canada, going to the U.S., um, raising a family. Like my sister and I both went, to, both went to Harvard. So Harvard, we can talk about that later. Not the best measure of success, but really in terms of geographic international movement, you know, I just kind of inspired by their own journey. Yeah, when they were uh, growing up in that Malaysian village, they couldn't imagine that both of their kids would end up going to Harvard someday. Yeah, I went back to their village and they lived near the river, house on stilts, chickens running around the yard. You know, it was really the boonies. Yeah, super rural, super tough way to live, but they probably didn't uh, know how tough they had it. Yeah, my dad worked as a lumberjack. He used to swim in the river and chain logs together to float them down. That is, he is a tough guy. He's got to be a tough guy. Is your dad still with us? Uh, yes, he is. Yeah, he's um, now sheltering in place in California, like so many other elder Americans. It's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is so, a shame. So he was a lumberjack, and then he worked in IT. In IT, yeah. My Same mom guy. worked it as a pre-K teacher for the last 30, 40 years. She loves it. She still works part time. Your dad may be the only uh, lumberjack to technology guy uh, out there. <laughs> Certainly alive. Great with his hands. You know, he is really inspiring. Very cool. So how did you fit in uh, with your background in Southern California? Yeah, so there's a lot of Asian Americans there, but um, and there's a lot of Chinese folks there too. Malaysian and Chinese are different and kind of jokingly, you know, when people say you're Asian American, it's huge, right? There's more Asians than anywhere else. East Asians are different than South Asians, for sure. Even among East Asians, we kind of joke that there are fancy Asians and jungle Asians. That's what some comedians say. The fancy Asians are from the developed cities, countries. I mean, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. My wife is Taiwanese and I love her dearly. The jungle Asians are like folks like my family, right? Who grew up in health on stilts, can kill a chicken, that kind of stuff. I mean, we're just kind of direct people with less layers. I mean, granted, I love the arts now, but, you know, it's, it's just a little bit different. Um, so even though we're Chinese and I speak some Mandarin Chinese, we're from Fujian. We actually speak a different dialect, Fuchao, they call it. And so whenever I went to family gatherings every weekend, people would speak Fuchao. I had no idea what they were saying. So I developed a kind of a keen sense of empathy because I had no idea. I would be in family situations for hours on the weekends, just watching people. And everybody spoke English. They could switch if I asked them anything. But I had to be very good at reading body language. And so that has been a great skill to help me connect with people today. Because, you know, I don't know what the heck people are saying sometimes, but I can read them. And that gives me an edge, hopefully. That's really cool. And how old were you when you were going to those family gatherings? Uh, starting when I was five years old. Um, all the way till when I was like 15, 16 or so. And then by then, I, my Chinese was good enough to understand things better. And so you were, this is all while you're in living in Southern California? Mm -hmm. Yep. So you would, uh, was English your first language, would you say? Yeah, my parents were pretty insistent that I learn English first. They were um, afraid that I would have an accent, right? And be discriminated against. Um, so they actually, you know, I went to Chinese school, but they really emphasized me learning English first. Um, I actually took Chinese in college, which was good. And then when I met my wife, she's Taiwanese. I had a big incentive to learn Chinese very quickly and very well. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's Cantonese or Mandarin? Mandarin Chinese. 
Okay. Uh, so you may not have been like the other kids in terms of your background, but you did, you were equipped at a young age with a high degree of empathy and uh, emotional intelligence. Um, so how was uh, how were your school days growing up? Yeah, so school days, um, I was pretty introverted. I was alone for a lot. I have an older sister, but she's seven years older. So we were always in different schools. She went off to Harvard when she was, I think, 16. Um, so early on, um, I was always kind of a sensitive guy, felt a lot. And for me, um, a key point was when I realized there's difference between being a sponge, kind of sucking up feelings and actually expressing them, right? So actually making use of that kind of raw sensitivity to tell stories, to write, to play my cello. And cello became one of the bigger things. And later on, I started drawing and painting too. So that was super cool. Cello for me was kind of the um, primary um, artistic outlet. And I love like just, you know, playing by myself, playing in chamber music. My first jobs <coughs> were in high school, um, actually doing a lot of weddings. I played like 50 weddings. I played Christmas music and shopping malls, other events with folks. That was cool. And then in um, college and law school, I played probably about 15 to 20 hours a week doing operas, being a street musician, chamber music, concerts, um, all that stuff, coffee houses. Wow, so you really hit um, the whole spectrum of, of events from from wedding all the way down to, to street <laughs> musicians. Yeah. Um, what 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 do you uh, what did you prefer about you know playing on the street versus playing that, that you couldn't get from playing at a at a wedding or an opera and vice versa? That's a great question. So on the street, you have to get used to rejection, right? Because nine out of ten people are just going to look at you and keep walking away. Um, cause they don't, there a lot of times if you talk to people or like try to meet people and they're busy, they're on their commute, they just want to get from point A to point B. Right. Sometimes I go to King street in Alexandria, Virginia, and that's kind of a nice, um, area where people relax and they'll feel happy on a weekend. And you can see there's actually a street cellist there. I know he does pretty well for himself because people are, are willing to be open. Also, I played in Boston on the street, um, and the, in Boston, the weather is not great, right? Especially for a wooden instrument like a cello. Mm. So whatever. I actually paired myself with a Chinese arhu player. It's kind of a Chinese string instrument. And we didn't have any music. We had just kind of improvised and jam. Honestly, didn't sound that fun. But we had fun. <laughs> and people would just kind of stop to look at us like, what the heck are these people doing, right? <laughs> They're just having fun. I think weddings um, were okay. But the, the thing about a wedding is the show must go on. And we, I did a lot of beach weddings growing up in Southern California. And when you're outside and you're playing off sheet music, you have like four or five clothespins to make sure sheet music doesn't blow away. And you have to play because the wedding goes on. I remember it was raining once and um, we were on a cliff outside and the sheet music was blowing away. And my parents um, and the first violinist parents were holding down our music while we played and tried to look elegant while the wedding still went on outside. That was one of the low points. And I kept on worrying, is my cello, my wedding, is my cello going to get soaked? Is the hair of my bow just going to like, you know, flop out, et cetera? But the show went on. And unfortunately, in the shopping mall, it was good because we were paid by the shopping mall owner to actually do music, right? So the steady job, you weren't relying on handouts. The problem is we had a rotation of 15 Christmas songs that we played over and over. The cello parts were usually really boring. 
So unfortunately, I hate Christmas music. <laughs> you know, that's the criticism that I hear of the of the cello. There's a, there's a great bit that somebody does about the song Canon and D, which is I one of my favorite songs. Canon. And the cello is just eight notes that repeat over and yep. over and over. I mean, it's a beautiful song. I hate the cello part. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a job, you know, works work. So. Yeah. So do you measure your success when you're playing uh, by the like the monetary, you know, how many people tip you or is it more about how many people uh, stop and pay attention and kind of admire your work? Yeah. So um, I realized early on that for me, music should be fun. And I knew some folks who went to the New England Conservatory of Music uh, who played the cello. And I went there to see a concert. And these are all people who play the cello six, seven hours a day. And the world is so narrow, right? That's all they do. Um, it was scary. I mean, they were much better cellists than I am. But for me, if I had to rely on it for a living, it adds a lot of stress, right? Where's your mm -hmm. next gig? And so being able to make music just for fun, maybe make some tips on the way, some drink money, if you're in the bar or whatever, that's good. And that's great. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, and I think the joy of playing with friends it's also cool because you're constantly reading each other's language, right? Right. My first girlfriend in college was the second violinist because we got close doing that. But I think being able to connect with an audience is really the gift. And again, just being naturally em empathetic, being able to bring somebody a smile or have somebody stop and look at you. That's kind of cool. Mm. How old were you when you started playing? I was nine years old. I started um, playing piano. Um, I started playing cello in fourth grade. I had to choose an instrument in the public orchestra or band. Um, I was a little scrawny, so I didn't think I had the, the muscles to blow a wind or brass instrument. The bass was too big. Uh, I know, Daniel, you play the violin, but everybody played the violin. I didn't know what a viola was, so it was a cello. It was a great <laughs> choice. <laughs> did, did you naturally uh, have interest in music, or was it something your parents uh, encouraged? Um, my parents started me on piano lessons. Um, I always liked piano. I always liked, after I got past the kind of technical part of just playing and learned so that you can express emotion through music, I was hooked. Very cool. I know you enjoy music quite a bit. Daniel does as well. Uh, Daniel, mm -hmm. uh, you, you've piano to cello. Daniel has transitioned uh, amongst what, four or five instruments? Right. So yeah. musician to musician, what's the uh, best advice you could give Daniel? Uh, uh, life? I, I wouldn't presume to give anybody advice, but um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just have fun with it. Right. Connect with your audience. I think a lot of performing artists right now um, feel kind of sad because they don't have live concerts. Mm -hmm. right? You don't have that connection. It can be fun to play with yourself by yourself, but only to a certain point. Right. Yeah. I actually had a friend, uh, so I'm much more of a social musician. Mm -hmm. And so I really need there to be a, a, a gathering around whatever's going on, which is why I've been drawn to this like Appalachian old time mm -hmm. uh, communal music. Um, and I have this friend that I used to play with, uh, really, really great musician. And we would jam and uh, we didn't really mix very well. And after a while, I, I kind of began to realize that this guy, to him, music was this sort of uh, personal, solitary uh, mm. vehicle for exploration. And he, would, I think, would be satisfied 
playing music to no audience, to, to nobody but himself, you know, forever, because for him, it's just that, um, that exploration. But for me, you know, if there aren't people around whatever's going on, then I'm not motivated to go home and practice and get good. And I'm not motivated to, to even play. So it's a bit of a catch 22. Yeah. It's a special rush when you're performing too. And there's a live performance or maybe even like our podcast right now, right? We are in the moment and you just feel more alive. And then you can feel the audience re- relate, respond instinctively to you. It's super cool. And um, that skill at performance, even though I'm introverted, I'm also pretty expressive. And that skill of being able to live in the moment, put on a face, just the show must go on to serve me a lot. For example, I remember when I started teaching law school. So it's like a three-hour class, 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. on Monday nights teaching pretty complex technical stuff to some jaded, argumentative law school students, I was freaked out. I was kind of freaked out. And then my, I felt my heart rate go up. It's like, you know, what did I get myself into? I felt like I, I wanted to teach, right? That's something to teach, to learn. And I actually had a hernia at that point. And so I was standing up for three hours at a podium trying to like actually, you can't see it here, but clutch my innards to make sure they didn't spill out. And they talk about tax law and stuff like that. And I, I, I was fixed. You know, it just had to wait a couple of weeks for the surgery. But, you know, the show must go on. <laughs> what, what, what caused, hold on, let's back up. What caused the hernia? And I, I have no idea. Hernias don't occur because I'm a bad person. or I, I'm very fit. I exercise. But just some genetic crap. I have no idea. So you taught jaded, law, argumentative law school students 6.30 to 9.30 p.m., uh, and you were new to it, sounds like. Correct. Yep. Uh, and you had you were suffering from a hernia. Yeah. The show, the show must go on. For three to four weeks between diagnosis till I got my surgery, I was literally and I tried to like sit down. I couldn't sit down and teach the class. I was like leaning against the podium so the podium would cover me, and I was literally pressing in to like saying, "Oh my god!" So um, they nobody noticed. So they thought it was a great class. I'm, so your kids, your kids will never. Uh, quit anything with your knowledge, I'm guessing. Uh, I, I try to be a role model for my kids. I'm a little worried that every time you say the show must go on, it's it's an even more extreme manifestation. <laughs> of I, I don't I don't want to do an encore of that, but <laughs> it, was, it was a good experience to get through. But it, it does sound like uh, the the resilience behind it. You know, where do you think that came from for you? Do you think that it was innate, or your parents passed it down? Hmm. I've had a lot of failure in my life, and you'd be surprised because you look at my resume, Harvard College, Harvard Law School, White Shoe Law Firm, et cetera. But, um, you know, I tried a lot of different things, and I failed at a lot of different things. Like jobs I've had that I made money include street musician, graphic designer, textbook writer, management consultant, different types of law, now professors too. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you a story which will kind of transition into why I care about developing people out of my own failure. So I was a young lawyer, a first year. Um, international law firm, they had a Singapore office. There's a key Singapore associate um, who got appendicitis. So they sent out an all-hands call saying, hey, we'll fly anybody to Singapore. You don't need uh, to know what you're doing. We just need arms and legs to get capital markets deal done raised debt and equity, hundreds of millions of dollar deals for local companies in Southeast Asia. 
So I said, oh, cool, I'm from Malaysia. So I'll go back down to that area of the world. So I flew down. Um, it was the summer. I stayed for over a month. And I probably worked over 100-hour weeks. And I had no idea what I was doing. I remember I was doing a deal to raise debt for an Indian hospital chain, um, for a Singapore semiconductor company, for another Indonesian company. I'd never done this before. And I remember there was another California associate they flew in who was throwing up every morning because of the stress. Mm. And I remember the way I was let go from that position was the office managing partner saw me in the bathroom. We were just literally in the urinals next to each other. And he looked at me and said, Andrew, you're still here? And I said, oh. yeah. And he said, well, let's talk after you finish. And then we went out the bathroom. He says, Andrew, go home now. You don't know what you're doing. And so out of that, and he was right. I did not know what I was doing. I probably should not have volunteered, or they should probably have a stricter criteria, right? And I learned from that to bounce back. Um, there's a lot of things where I've gotten bad feedback in my life, and I reflected on it, and I've internalized it. And I say, okay, crap, I failed. You know, For example, at Harvard, I love science, right? So I started as a physics major. I was taught my first semester by a guy who won the Nobel Prize, Sheldon Glashow, for, I think, gas uh, molecule movement. I got a C- minus in the class. I got an A of a 5 in AP physics, A saw my math, et cetera. But I just couldn't get the conceptual grasp. So I changed. I became a social studies major, graduated with like a, a 3.85 average or something like that. And it was fine. But out of all those failures comes resilience, right? And you just keep trying. Um, and then I always resolve to myself that, dude, I've been the little guy a lot. And the least I can do is be there for my team and train them and develop them. And by the way, um, you cultivate insane loyalty if you look out for their interests. And after that, just felt good to relate to people. And I formalized that by giving my two teaching gigs. So the, I think that, you know, you, you have an affinity, it sounds like, for uh, – moving toward whatever this, like the pressure cooker uh, experiences are in your life, you know, like going to Singapore where somebody ends up throwing up every morning due to stress. Uh, do you think that the, the, the affinity for that is, is it as important as anything else? Like, because what I'm getting at is, you know, if, if somebody decides that the stress is too much, the failure is too much, and they just want to stop trying, then they'll never be exposing themselves to, to failure. And then therefore, won't be exposing themselves to building resilience. Yeah, so Nietzsche said like, hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But dude, you can take a break for a while too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you bend, not break. And, you know, I, I certainly veg out and watch like Japanese anime on the treadmill to veg out other things too. You have to have a sense of humor about it, right? But I feel that life is full of really interesting stuff to do, like your own life, Daniel. You've lived in a lot of different countries, and you're better for it. So I, you know, my litmus test is, hey, five years from now, if I look back, will I regret not having tried it out? Right? And I think as I've gotten older, um, I've become a little more fearless because you know, I've, I've been courageous enough to try a lot of things. And I'm never as good as somebody who's specialized and only done one thing. I really like to be the Swiss Army knife. Um, that being said, cool, I have fun. I can talk to people like you. <laughs> <laughs> interesting stuff going on. Yeah. 
Well, cool. I, I'd never had the music bug, uh, but you, you clearly are into the arts. And so it's not just music that you're into artistically. You also paint, which I, I yeah. learned recently. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in college, I started drawing and painting. Um, you know, I was kind of trying to figure out what's the best art form to express myself. Sounds really like highfalutin, right? And music was a lot of fun. And I played with folks and I love improvising by myself, but it only lasts when you're playing it and then it's gone. You can record it, but who's going to listen to recording all the time? And then I started writing and I wrote poems and short stories. Those were fun too. But it, you don't feel the joy necessarily. It felt a little bit like work, honing and crafting. And I thought, well, you know, um, let me get a book. So I got a, draw, a famous drawing book called Drawing on the Left Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards, which is a great book. I really recommend it. Awesome book. And even now, like um, you can see, like I just took an orchid off my desk to show you. Um, I recommend learning drawing to anybody because it teaches you an appreciation for how things look, just the visual interest and stuff. I learned to recognize shadow and line and perspective. And after that, I was never bored. I could take a look at something and just notice the details. It was awesome. So I got into drawing just like pencil, charcoal, and I started using really cheap paints. And I had my Jackson Pollock phase where I would just like put like poster board on the floor and just smear things up. And I started taking um, some art classes um, at the college and the local community college too. I was never that great. I have a couple of canvases that we've hung up at home, but it was just fun. Yeah. Can I see your uh, paintings someday? Yeah, sure. Again, they're nothing great. Um, there are a lot of still lives of flowers, et cetera. I tend to like uh, really saturated colors because gray, black and white is kind of boring. I tend not to like a lot of right angles. My stuff tends to be very um, kind of flowy, vibrant, full of life. Very cool. I'm, I'm very excited to actually see this. It, it, it's, it's interesting to hear someone who, it sounds like you kind of really took a nice foray into art and you also are a Harvard graduate. Well, you're you know, a, a pretty accomplished person, uh, refer to themselves as, as a generalist because I kind of associate generalists with uh, doing a lot of things, but not doing them uh, like super, super well. He thinks of me. So he thinks of generalists. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but, but my question is like, at, at what point do you satisfy, like I'm good enough at this thing. I can go and do something else now um, in, in your, in your generalist, in your pursuit of being a generalist. Like what is the threshold for you to be like, okay, that's on my tool belt. Um, and I can, I can go back to that whenever I want, but I'm okay to start moving on to something else. I think the key is, am I still having fun? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're still having fun, then keep doing it. When it starts to feel like work or kind of less interesting because it's less due to you, you switch it up, go do something else, come back to it later. Do you ever feel bad for, uh, not being as interested in something anymore? Like if you really loved painting six months ago and then all like now you're kind of like falling off the edge. He's asking yeah, for a friend. I'll come back to it. Yeah, I'll come back to it. Yeah. Yeah, just take a break for a while and then go do something else, come back. Nice. Cool. Very and cool. so you got, the, you got the music and you got the drawing and you got the painting. Are there any other um, artistic expressions that you have found? And poetry and, and you've written a thriller right. novel, right? Yeah, so, um, so I have a friend named John. He's a great guy, one of my good friends. John wrote a science fiction novel, and um, he was sending it off to publishers, right, which is a long process. It could be like a year, year and a half. 
And John was like, well, I still want to write something. And I was like, okay, cool. And then John, literally, I'm on the subway to go home after work. Then John texts me. He's like, hey, Andrew, want to write a romantic novel together as like a romance? He says, yeah, I know we can make fun of it. It can be a parody. And it was like, and I thought to myself, like, I was feeling, or feeling in kind of a rut. Like, oh, I, was, I haven't done anything creative lately. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I literally, and I said, look, I'm serious about it. I will do that. So um, originally it was going to be a parody of a romance novel, but they realized that writing a novel is like a serious endeavor, right? So um, it has turned out to be a legal thriller with a female heroine from um, Idaho, because my friend John's from Idaho. And it was 70,000 words. And it took us about six to nine months to put together. And we workshopped it at a couple of conferences. We have it out to an agent right now. Um, you know, so let's see what happens. Nobody becomes a writer to make money. But it was cool to actually, like, work with John. And we co-wrote the novel um, to design, just do a, a full-length story and do character development. It taught me a lot. <clears throat> I'm working right now on a second novel. Unfortunately, my job at West Creek has like um, uh, taken up a lot of my time. But my original goal was to finish it this summer. I have about 60,000 words or so on that now, too. So your first novel is in process and it may be published in the future? Hope so. Maybe yeah. somebody will this podcast say, hey, this Andrew Ting guy sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, our numbers may not help you as much, but you never know. Maybe <laughs> one out there out of that. Uh, it's having fun. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold on to this episode until your book is, is being sold and then your art is being sold at different auctions. <laughs> and then we can announce all that at the beginning. <laughs> uh, it's all very exclusive, friends and family only. <laughs> oh, okay. Never mind then. <laughs> so uh, anything else on the art front? I think we've covered... Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's, that's a lot though, Andrew. You, you understand that the average person that I've encountered is either into art or not, but I'd say about half of humanity's they love to consume the art, but they don't actually perform the art or, or do the art themselves. And the ones that actually perform or do the art are not doing it across so many different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're, it feels like a top 1% thing. Is that drive or is that love of diversity? Uh, what, what's driving you to so many disciplines? I think love of diversity. I do get bored fairly easily. Um, so I tend to gravitate to jobs which let me do a lot of things, right? Um, and I'd rather be a jack of all trades, master of none, just that I can experience a lot of different things. And um, it's served me well so far. Um, and later on, you know, when I have time, I'll focus on something, get it good. But I also find too, that even though you kind of flit around from topic to topic, the skills you learn from trying one thing actually chance for other. For example, we're talking about performance arts. Um, I was became a better law school lecturer because I knew how to hold a room as a cello performer, how to read a room, change my voice, express this, express that, manage my nerves. You know, there are, you know, I, I became a better lawyer, a more expressive lawyer in my writing because I was a novelist where my novels had a really tight outline were very structured because that was my legal writing. So I think, you know, even though it's, it feels kind of discordant to go in 10 different directions, in the long run, those 10 different directions kind of synergize with each other. Cool. So let's talk about teaching uh, and transition to that, because I, it sounds like your life is fairly fluid and things flow one into the other, uh, and they both play off of uh, the, your varied interests. 
your love of teaching comes out of you wanting to help other people, to develop people. Uh, and this, uh, what I would describe as a rare form of empathy that I think you possess, oh, you. I think also is a big part of you wanting to teach. But you, you don't just teach at one school, you teach at two. So mm -hmm. why teach at two different schools? Is, is it the subject matter that is, is exciting to you or, or what's driving that? Oh, and which schools are they? Oh, so yeah, I teach, I'm an adjunct professor at um, uh, George Washington University's law school and also Georgetown University's uh, business school, the McDonough School of Business. Um, so, I mean, this kind of feeds into the uh, kind of social, economic, racial diversity thing, right? So my parents are immigrants, Malaysian, Chinese immigrants, not really like, you know, white collar folks, you know, coming from generations in America. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, I really didn't know um, how to act in a professional environment until I got there. I made a lot of mistakes, right? And then there were also weren't a lot of uh, mentors. I mean, there were some nice people who kind of pitied me, helped me sometimes. But then there were also bosses who told me, hey, Andrew, you're unlikely to get promoted to law firm partner for cultural reasons. I said, really? Basically just saying that, hey, um, Asian people aren't expressive. Um, they are too quiet. Um, and so like, you know, you know you're probably not going to make it. It's like, fuck yeah. Well, I, I said that in my head. <laughs> he, he was trying. Sorry, I hope profanity is allowed in this podcast. No, you're, you're fine. Uh, it was just All a letter right. that we put on the, on the episode. <laughs> you can beep it out. But, okay. um, but he had a point. It is kind of like he actually liked me. He was trying to help me. I mean, that I needed to become more assertive, right? Take credit, compete with the white frat boys who like to go drinking after work. When I went straight home to my family because I love my family. I'd rather spend time with my babies and go drinking and, and get the good work from the M&A partner who got sloshed. So, um, so teaching kind of goes from this, hey, I want to be a mentor and role model to law school students. Because, you know, law school doesn't really teach you about being a lawyer. And there's a huge gap. So the classes I teach are very practical. I do a lot of role playing with clients, very practical business problems. Instead of like a final exam, I make them do um, project-based presentations. Memos, and they actually have to get up and pitch how they're going to negotiate to me as the as the audience. So, sorry, can, can you explain why uh, or how law schools don't actually teach you to be a lawyer? Yeah, so um, actually I learned more from one of my jobs on the IT help desk. I, so I worked 15 hours a week to put myself through college at the IT help desk at Harvard Business School. And um, law is fundamentally a customer service business. It is an intellectual, you have to be smart, you have to read the laws, you have to know the substance, et cetera, but it is customer service. A lawyer needs a client. If you're not responsive to that client, the client's gonna be angry. If you're not reading the client's priorities right, their body language, et cetera, you're not gonna deliver the advice in a way that they'll appreciate and actually wanna follow. Um, I learned from an IT help desk that I needed to be very practical, responsive, show people quickly I was on their side, and then they would kind of open their heart and we could work towards a solution. Law school doesn't teach any of that. A lot of the, well, I, oh, there are exceptions, but at least my law school experience was typically more for academics. So it's intellectual, right? So you have a case book, um, you have a topic, say my contracts case book, and you have a legal principle. You read two cases about that legal principle. Case A says that legal principle is true. Case B says that legal principle is false. You spend an hour and a half debating it. You end the class not knowing what the actual law is, but you had an argument and rinse, lather, and repeat. 
for the next week's class. I actually learned a lot more substantive law studying for the bar exam where they just kind of force feed and you memorize it to you than from Harvard Law School. That is a little unfair because I did learn analytical skills at Harvard Law School, which you know I value. And I met my wife there, which I very much value. But eh, that's why I spent 15 to 20 hours a week in law school playing music instead. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, uh, this might be a little bit of a, of a, of a tangent, but um, recently in the technology world, there's, there's, there's been a decreasing emphasis on college for people who want to specifically become software engineers, uh, data scientists. And instead, you're seeing these uh, more targeted schools or boot camps pop up. And also, you know, learning how to program is, is pretty well democratized. You can do You can teach yourself uh, by going on the Internet. And you saying that, that working at a help desk and sort of that uh, emotional intelligence or empathic uh, ability is more important to your ability as a lawyer. Um, lawyer, I'm wondering, uh, do, do you see a potential future uh, that that uh, is kind of an analog to the technology world right now, where where the, sort of the legal profession is democratized and people uh, who don't necessarily want to drop you know tons and tons of money on on law school or go into debt uh, can can learn and become effective. Um, I, don't, I mean, I know you have to pass the bar exam and stuff, but I, do, do you get what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, the school of life is more important than any like institutional school, right? And I think um, all of America is going through this crazy thought experiment now where we're all learning online without the social interaction that comes from going to college, fooling around with people being exposed to stuff other people like to do and saying, oh, I might try that too. I might try drawing or painting or hanging with the art crowd instead of the physics crowd, stuff like that. Right. So you lose that community and kind of that spontaneity from just being mixed up with different people. And sure, you can learn, learn good coding skills through link to learning. One of my kids is doing that now, which is great. But I, I do think you kind of miss out on the socialization and becoming a whole person. I, you know, my kids are great. I think they're reasonably well adjusted, but I worry about their kids and all of America's kids online learning for like six months, nine months, however long it takes, they're going to lose out from learning from other people. And I think that's a key thing you can't get just from a boot camp. Not even from a, like, do you think that it's also going to be hurt by the fact that it's zoom or video calling like we're doing right now? Uh, are you worried yeah, that things are lost? Better. Yeah. Video is a little bit better because you can see folks. And I, I taught my law school, my business school class through Zoom with like, you know, 40, 50 students, like on small things. And I could kind yeah. of get how they were reacting, not, but um, it's just not the same, right? Yeah. You can't really hang out after school with your friends. Kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So, so to, to give a short answer and tell me where I'm off here, mm. the, the ticket that is the college degree is important, but life skills are equally and sometimes even more important. Yeah, I think it's more of the journey, not just the degree. And if you can get that life experience, like in the military, for example, that's awesome, right? And then you are learning in the real world from a variety of experiences. College is great, but it's not the be-all, end-all for everybody. So tell us your best uh, story around you mentoring somebody and uh, how that turned out, and the one that gives you the most pride when you think about it. Yeah, so, um, well... <laughs> When I left my prior job to come to West Creek, uh, people cried. I had like two or three people on my team cried. Um, I felt 
you know, I felt guilty, but I knew I was going to a good company. But I think the opportunity, I mean, being a manager is tough, right? You deal with a lot of crap, politics, the business. Sometimes you have to uh, let people go. Sometimes you can promote them, et cetera. But it can also be very rewarding to take people under your wing and develop them and turn them into something great and just work together as a unit. For example, one of my mentees um, at the international law firm, um, uh, we overlapped by two or three years and I left to go in-house to work for a company. And we probably worked together about 4,000 hours in those three years. And I really, I really formed her as a lawyer because I was her first, his, uh, her first mentor. And then when she made partner at that law firm, like seven years later, she called me and said, hey, Andrew, everything I know, all the habits, et cetera, is all because of you. I was like, that's sad because I left five, six years ago. <laughs> but, you know, you that, was, that was pretty cool, right? And then other folks too, like, um, you know, maybe they were just blowing bubbles, but, you know, people cried when I left. Said, Andrew, you're the best boss I've ever had. I've got that four or five times. And I figured that, hey, if it brings me such joy to like tell people I my mistakes, encourage them, inspire them to be better, maybe I should do this, you know, in a structured environment. So I teach. And a lot of my students who graduated still keep in touch. And they don't have to, but they keep in touch about their jobs, their successes, questions. Sometimes they just want to talk. Totally happy to do that. So, Andrew, I, it feels like uh, most people have... 16 or 17 waking hours and seven, eight hours of sleep at night. Do you have like a, uh, a 35 hour day no. and somehow I'm missing out. You do all that. No, I'm actually very inefficient. Um, I, I, I don't think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more about quality than um, quantity of time. Right. So a lot of it is just getting into the right mood for the creative stuff. And when I'm in the mode, I listen to my music, whatever I'm, yeah, I, I'll lead the humility. I'm pretty damn good. <laughs> I, I can crank through. I can, you know, really create. I can do a lot of stuff. Um, but I need my seven, eight hours of sleep at night. Otherwise, I'm a wreck. I'm kind of like a, I'm a thoroughbred racehorse. I have to eat properly. I have to sleep properly. Then I can run. Otherwise, I, I start to fall apart. I know that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so. We had a standard question that we're not going to ask right now. Daniel's trying out a second question that he, he is thinking about making a standard question that I think screams for Daniel to ask you our second standard I mean, question. Well, so I think this actually fits in w with what you were talking about. Your, uh, the, the person that you mentored, your mentee, who seven years later uh, called you back. Um, and it's, it's about habits and the habits that you, that you taught uh, her. So, my, the question that I, I want to ask is, what's a habit that you've enacted uh, in your life that you think has made a meaningful difference? Sure. So um, just in the last few months, life's changed, right? We're all at home. And, um, you know, I have a, a Fitbit. So I track my steps. And when I was at home, my physical condition really just suffered. I mean, it tanked, right? Because you're at home, you can't go out. I'm not commuting, et cetera. So uh, every day for the last month, with one exception, when I took my wife to her new job, um, you know, I've been running for an hour every morning. I usually used to do it at night, but for me, physical activity is just really important. I mean, yeah. they, um, you know, I, I'll, later on, I'll send you a classic article, Harvard Business Review, saying, hey, we, you know, Paul and I, you were all corporate athletes, basically saying that 
Okay. Athletes in the business world, you go on for 30, 40 years, you compete at high levels of concentration for 10 hours a day, right? So to do that, it's not just your intellectual part, your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health. It's like a pyramid. You have to have it all together. So you need to maintain all that. So that's mm-hmm. really my guiding principle. So just, you know, starting up the day, knowing I've done 75, 8,000 steps, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and the, 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 the key, I think that a lot of people and myself included get hung up on is, is the motivation aspect of, of, you know, putting down the work to, to actually build the habit. Mm-hmm. Um, how, like, how, how would you recommend, do you have any tips on that? Um, <laughs> okay. Andrew is uh, showing us a book right now. Your listeners can't see this obviously, but on my desk, I have a really good book I recommend called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, F-O-G-G. And actually my kid um, read about it. Um, he also read How to Win Friends and Influence People. So he's in the big self-development kick. Oh boy. Um, yeah. Well, like father, like son. It's How old is your kid? It's actually a really good book. I recommend it. And it's called Tiny Habits. You start with little stuff. You don't try to get the big goal that kind of demoralizes you when you can't take it all at once. You build up, you reinforce it, you celebrate it with even every little step you take. And now like when I wake up at 530 in the morning, like it's like, okay, I'm going down. It's just like, like a dog looking for water in the morning, right? I go down to the gym. I do my run. Yeah. Yeah. I read a story about a uh, guy who had never run in his life. He'd gotten up to about 350 pounds and he got it in his mind that he wanted to run a marathon. That was the goal he set, but he had set, uh, hundreds of goals shy of that that would yep. build to his ability to run an entire marathon. And the first step, and, and because he was so big and so out of shape, was to simply run 25 yards. Yeah. And right. then the next day he would run another 25 yards beyond that. And he literally incrementally, like not quite 25 yards at a time because he got into better shape and it ended up being mile or five mile increments. But you're, I think you're right. I think if everybody took, took that approach and stayed dedicated to that incremental approach, you, it's amazing what you can accomplish. So one tiny habit is every time you go to the bathroom, you do two push-ups, right? And then you can slowly increase. But you, you know, I don't know how many times you go, but you can do like 20 push-ups a day. And you start doing three push-ups every time you pee. So my, my son started doing that. I said, hey, hey, Ryan, if you're like outside, I don't want you to like go on the floor and do squats instead. So he'll do squats instead. So, so Andrew, at my age, I'd have to do about 50 push-ups then based on what you're describing. Start off small and you get bigger. <laughs> How old is your uh, son? Uh, I have two kids, 13 and 11. Oh, wow. Both, both boys, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm going to r- walk into like risky or territory here, but I'm just going to go for it because I, I – I think that you know that I have the best intentions in mind, but it's cool that you, uh, your kids seem really motivated and like they, they really want to get after it, you know, self-improvement, but it doesn't seem like you're the type of parent that applies pressure, uh, in any kind of negative way. So, um, how do you kind of foster that, that motivation and that, uh, you know, chutzpah, I guess, um, without sort of, or where does like the firmness or the, or the discipline come in and, to the, to the picture? That's a great question. And actually ties into like Asian American parents, right? Cause there's the stereotype that, Hey, um, tiger mom, tiger dad, you forced your kids to do all these hobbies. <clears throat> they grow up to kind of like be very good, but not creative, et cetera. I was really fortunate on the one hand, my sister and I both went to Harvard college. 
Um, but, you know, honestly, my parents made it very clear that they loved us no matter what. Try our best, but they would always love us. And they, would, they would really try our best and they would like drive us to the library, to like orchestra, to wherever and give us opportunities. Um, but, you know, and then they would celebrate results. But, you know, I always knew I had that strong emotional foundation too. Um, and, you know, I just genuinely love learning. I think the world is super cool and there's a lot of interesting things to do. Um, I actually counsel like um, a couple of kids. I was like a pro bono general counsel for Asian American League. They basically run after school programs for uh, poor like Asian youth in DC, mostly Chinese, Vietnamese. And um, you shouldn't like study stuff just because somebody tells you to. Um, obviously you need to put in the work to get good at it, but you know, do it because you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's interesting to you and getting over that hump is, is important. Harvard college was interesting. Um, a lot of super smart people, a lot of people who are smarter than me in um, their, their different domains. A lot of, most people worked harder than me too. Um, but you know, a lot of them were not necessarily that emotionally or mentally healthy. They were, had been on a treadmill to get where they were extremely accomplished. But when you're like a kid, you know, like who's setting your goals now, right? You transition from your parents, your community expectations to what do you want to do? It's terrifying for people. Or you couldn't be the biggest fish in the pond of your high school anymore. You're just one star out of many at Harvard. So, um, you know, there was an attempted suicide in my freshman dorm. Um, I knew the girl. She was a really sweet girl. We had no idea. Um, my sister also had similar experiences with people she knew. So I learned quickly that, hey, if I'm not as smart as other people, I'm not going to work as other hard as people. I'm going to turn to philosophy. <laughs> and you know, be able to self-rationalize and, you know, and just deal with life that way. And it's, it's been my a trademark. So given your background, uh, Andrew, as uh, Chinese ethnicity, uh, your parents grew up in rural Malaysia, and I'll use the term that you use, uh, jungle Asian. Sure. Uh, and then you, you, your parents spent some time in Canada. You spent a little bit of time. You don't remember much of that, but there's still probably some Canadian influence uh, mm -hmm. through your parents and then certainly the American experience. And what's been going on in this country for the last two and a half months since the uh, killing of George Floyd, mm -hmm. your, your perspective uh, is quite has to be extremely unique. Um, and people, I think, will be more open to it because your background is not black American or yeah, white yeah, American. Yeah. Yeah, uh, And so if you could just share your thoughts on what's going on in this country as, a, as an American who cares about uh, the country and the people around you. To be honest, I cried, you know, I mean, um, in general, like I support the police law and order. I think the police are entitled to deference, especially when they make snap decisions. Right. Like somebody is charging at them. Do you shoot, not shoot? So it's just hard. Um, that being said, when I watched the George Floyd video, dude, it was eight minutes. Um, the guy was like crying for his life. You know, clearly you didn't need to choke him methodically to death. I cried. I live right in D.C. And um, there, you know, on a Sunday night, there were riots. Like the CVS on my block was burned down, like boarded up. A lot of broken glass. And, they, and you know, the feds sent in the militaries. So there were helicopters overnight. You couldn't sleep. Um, 
there the the Missouri National Guard set of roadblocks around. You know, it was just a horrible thing. Um, I mean, it's not black and white, no pun intended. I think that certainly folks feel persecuted and they feel that they can't um, they can't trust the police sometimes. My friend John, who I wrote the science fiction novel with, he is half black, half white. He grew up in Idaho. Great guy. And I remember saying, having a debate with him. I say, hey, John, um, how, many, how much of the police do you think are good? I'd say oh, probably 80% or so like, are, are good people, want to do the right thing, protect people. And he hesitated. He was like, don't know about that. He's like, well, I guess maybe I could get on board with that. So I don't know. It's real, right? Um, I would love to trust the police. There are good people in the police. I believe that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what, what's tricky about, you know, kind of guessing how many, how much of the police are, are good people or not is uh, I think that you can have good people, but if you put them into a um, system that's that has flaws, uh, yeah. especially like a social system that has flaws, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and one such flaw would be the lack of um, self uh, investigation, for, for example, that I think a lot of police departments face, um, then good people might do bad things because that's the environment in which they're in. Uh, I, so. I, I did go down to the National Mall when the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, right, with my wife. But we didn't feel comfortable taking our kids there. We went down and people looked at us with curiosity because mostly, well, they're actually black and white people marching down the street but we're Asian and Asians tend to be, well, there's a big disparity between, you know, social economically fancy Asians, jungle Asians, some Asians like the, the Vietnamese who came here after the Vietnam war, they're war refugees, right? They don't have the advantages of education um, degrees that people like my, um, my dad came in. So, you know, wide variety of backgrounds, but Asians don't fall neatly into one side of the spectrum, which I think made it all the more important for my wife and I to, raise our fists in support, right? When we went through that and people and the, you know, most of the African-Americans would nod and clap and we'd walk around. We stayed a social distance away from people, mm. but it felt good to kind of show them that, hey, you know, it's not just black people who are behind this or white people who care. Chinese people care too. So I don't know. I think it's a national conversation that will continue to get worked out one person at a time. Yeah, I... Uh... I feel um, as a guy who's lived in uh, Virginia for 51 years. And so implied in growing up in Virginia is the whole North versus South mm. uh, pro-slavery, anti-slavery. Uh, and then everything that has come from, from that time, part of me says that was a really long time ago. Part of me says, yeah, but the, the systems that were put in place back then have really not gone away. Uh, they may not be as severe or as obvious, but, those are still there. Mm -hmm. And I don't, the problem seems so uh, big and daunting. I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the next step is, but I, back to the incremental uh, approach that you talked about earlier, I think it's small steps that eventually add up and get us to a, a better place. Do you end racism? I, I, I'm not sure because human nature is mm -hmm. to bring bias into your life and, and mm -hmm. surround yourself with people that make you comfortable, which mm -hmm. is the typical tendency for people. Uh, and so one of the things that I think we can do is to put ourselves, much like you have done for most of your life, put ourselves in uncomfortable positions and hear perspectives that are maybe painful to hear, 
but can be informative and help us get to a uh, better shared understanding. Yeah, I feel like I often have to work a little harder to connect with folks. Um, so I'm a Chinese guy, I wear glasses, I'm a lawyer, right? So who wants to talk to a Chinese glasses wearing guy who's a lawyer just off the bat, I see you're smiling. But you know, um, once people get to know me, it's cool, right? Because, you know, I, I get along with everybody. It's, it's something I enjoy. But, you know, I, I often feel like, you know, if it's just somebody who's nailing crap like at me on the street, like, you know, sometimes people will say, I was like driving in Indiana, for example. I was um, there. My wife got an MBA from Indiana University, got a taxi there. And the taxi driver starts yelling at me about soybean tariffs. Like you people in China, your soybean tariffs are hurting our farmers. As like, and he was like driving pretty fast. And then I, 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 we actually, I turned it around. We had a nice conversation for about 30 minutes. And I said, look, I'm not one of them. You know, cool. we, we talked about this. You went that. back. So you were driving and you turned around and went back and talked to them? No, no. It was a long like taxi ride. So we had about 30 minutes. So it's like, oh crap, what did I get myself into? Uh, I, I turned it around, but it was like the first, one of the first things he said, right. Was like, he was a, sees a Chinese looking person and he starts blaming me. And so like, dude, I think my request would be just see people as people. Start have dialogue with them. That's the mission of the podcast. You'll get some understanding. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Andrew, one of the things that I learned about you and your family early on was your kids go to public schools in DC. And I, right. I think you had the option of uh, educating your children in, in other ways. Mm -hmm. Tell us why you chose to uh, educate your Asian American kids in DC public schools. Absolutely. Great question. Um, so yeah, I have, you know, I make enough money. I could send my kids to private school. I thought it was really important to go to public schools so they could relate to anybody. So my kids went to KIPP, Knowledge is Power program. KIPP runs um, one of the biggest public charter schools in the country, about 200 schools around nationwide, about 15 in DC. The KIPP elementary school that they went to get through until fourth grade was a really nice school. Um, it was about, also about 95% black, maybe 90% black, six, 7% Hispanic, a couple of white kids, and my two Asian kids in a school of about 600. I, I believe about 80% of them were eligible for some kind of federal poverty assistance too. So, and people look at that and say, crap, Andrew, why did you send your kids there? Because, you know, they're going to get picked on. And in fact, one of my kids got picked on, yelled out saying, China boy. Um, you know, he actually got in a fist fight once. He won it, so he got suspended for two days. And I, I told him that, good job, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to lose it for lots of reasons. Yeah, no, I know. And the, and the prince was like, I'm sorry, I have to suspend you. I was like, that's fine. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, I think it's, I mean, to build the bridges, right? I don't want my kids to be comfortable. I want them to have a great education. I don't want them to hide in their enclave. I want them to be able to get along with anybody, anywhere, anytime. I want them to get along with black people, poor people, Hispanic people, white people, et cetera. So yeah, you, I just did that. I mean, I could have sent them to a very comfortable place where you didn't worry about getting in trouble, right? Or like people like slanting their eyes like this. Trying to talk in accents to mock Chinese people. My kids that like, grew up in DC, you know, you don't have did no you accent. did you have a hard time convincing your wife to put them in public school? No, she agrees. Nice. She agrees. I mean, so I think we we live that. As a result, my kids can pretty much get along with anybody. 
I mean, it's well, really great. You're you're raising them to be the best uh, version of a, of a human, right? Yeah. Somebody who, who can uh, relate to and uh, therefore care for anybody, regardless of their background or what they look like. Absolutely, I think true humility means like being able to walk in a lot of different people's shoes and relate to them and respect them. Very cool. So this podcast is a bit about posterity. I say a bit because we started being almost entirely about posterity and that we still maintain that as one of our themes. Uh, and so within that theme, uh, Andrew, and I know your, your sons are only 13, 11, but someday you may have grandkids. So when your grandkids will listen to this years from now, what's uh, one of the life's lessons that you'd like to share with them? Hmm. I'd say um, life has a lot of chapters, right? And at the beginning, other people are writing your book, but later on, you choose when to start or end a chapter, whether it's a job, a relationship, going to school. You know, some chapters are sad, some are great. Um, your book will end eventually. It's your book. You can make it very stable. You can also make it super interesting, keep moving around like you, Daniel. Um, and you're following your parents. So they were right. kind of writing, helping write your book, which makes sense early in your life. And I would just say that, um, you know, when you look back, try not to have regrets. Like, you know, when I think about a decision, should I do it or not? It's like, well, I regret not doing that. Like, is this the right thing? You know, having moral clarity can make decisions easier. So develop that over time. It's a uh, great answer. Um, yeah. I love my dad and I think my dad did a decent job raising me, but I wish uh, maybe you would raise me. <laughs> Goodness. No, my dad, it, I can say that safely because knowing my dad uh, is not listening to any of the episodes we've recorded. Oh yeah. Sure, yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you mention to me you listened to that episode? Uh, that's up for, that's second on my list okay. after um, Katie's episode. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, Cool. Uh, so our other standard question, I think we've asked 30 sometimes now, and uh, I'm actually, I'm not sure what you're going to say to this question. Um, and this, this is completely outside of everything we've discussed so far. There's nothing that we've discussed that comes anywhere near one of these two endeavors. So in our question, the scenario is you're 25 years old, you're not married, you have no kids, you're only responsible for yourself, and you have two paths you can go down. One is comedy, and the other is the military. This can Correct. be comedy, you said? Comedy. Comedy. Okay. Yeah, being Stand funny. Up. Okay. So you can either, and, and by the way, your military service, I think, because you're a Canadian citizen as well, right? Yeah, I'm a U.S. and Canadian, yep. So, so you could serve in the Canadian military or the U.S. military. But the comedy route is performing once a week for six months. You're writing your own material and you're testing it on strangers. And the military route is four years of active service. You may or may not deploy to a dangerous place. Cool. I would go the comedy route because I'm a, I am a performer. Um, and actually, I know two lawyers, friends of mine, who actually became full-time comedians. Wow. Comedians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they made the bridge. Um, that would be challenging. I am expressive. I don't really particularly like big crowds. I think talking to you is, is a good way to relate, but not like in terms of like a, a huge stadium or audience. But yeah, I, I would probably do that. But uh, my wife's from a military family. I very much respect um, the military tradition as well. Very cool. So you're, uh, tell us about your wife. She sounds like an amazing person too. Yeah, yeah. So my wife, um, well, her dad was drafted when she was probably 14, 15 in the Chinese Civil War to fight against the communist, Chinese Communist Party. They lost. 
And so he had to evacuate to Taiwan, taking a couple of kids from his village as well. And so um, Taiwan early on was, you know, pretty desperate place. So he was in the military. Um, he actually studied law books at night. And in Taiwan, they restrict the number of lawyers. There is only a 1% bar exam pass rate. Oh. 1%. But, and also to be a judge, um, it's actually similar. So he actually studied law at night from his military service, passed and became a criminal judge. So my wife um, grew up in a very um, traditional order-oriented disciplinary uh, family. Um, she has a younger brother as well. She grew up in Taiwan, went to college in Taiwan, law school in Taiwan, worked a year in two, but always felt that, um, you know, she always loved American movies, American culture. And um, to advance in Taiwan, you kind of need an international law degree as a lawyer. And so she said, okay, I'll go study in the United States. And then she was going to make partner at her um, Taiwan law firm when she returned. But she met me and I screwed that all up. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. Um, so she actually, um, she took a step back when we had two kids, right? And she wanted to like stay home, be there with our, our sons. Absolutely the right decision. I think they're much closer to us for it. And then she started working at, at a bank. And then as an in-house lawyer, she finished her online MBA in February. And actually just last week, she accepted a job as the general counsel of a government contractor company, about 500 people performing IT services. How's it going so far? Uh, her first day is actually next Monday. Oh, got it. I thought you yeah, started. Yeah. 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 Very, very cool. That's impressive, especially the, uh, the online MBA, you know, post two kids. Yeah, she's a hard worker. I think, um, you know, our kids look at us and like, you know, we lead by example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, how old were you when you went to law school? Uh, I worked one year um, in between in management consulting, selling drugs. I have a story about that while I was oh, in law school. Please. So I went to law school when I was 21. I, I skipped a grade. So I was okay, okay, cool. Uh, we love to hear the drug story. Yeah, so management consultant, um, kind of an awakening for me, right? So management consultants are hired by companies to do strategy, so you come in, you learn about the company, you do this really beautiful PowerPoint to, you know, to try to have great new ideas or not. Um, my clients included pickup truck accessories, distributorship in Indiana, run by a guy who is now the senator from Indiana, Mike Braun, actually. Um, but most of the work that I did was for Biogen. Um, and they sell a drug called Avonex to treat multiple sclerosis, which is a really good drug. And I was definitely behind it. How did I go to law school? I really didn't know many lawyers growing up. And I thought about law school because it seemed like an intellectual job. You could do a lot of things. But I really know many lawyers. So I remember um, we uh, were advocating for certain marketing messages, right? To help say, hey, Abinex is better than the competition, et cetera. They were pretty aggressive. And so um, to get approval, we had to get approval from the legal department at Biogen. And so like, I go there with my boss. And we're in there. And he's actually a Chinese lawyer. So I was like, I'm super excited. This is actual Chinese lawyer. And I don't know many lawyers. That's so kind of the back of my head thinking about going to law school. And I look at his bookshelf and he has like, I kid you not, 10 books on anger management techniques. <laughs> like, what the F is this? And, um, and the lawyer is like super busy, right? He says, oh, no, I, I do most of my stuff on stock options. You want me to review some marketing materials? Give it to me. Let me take a look. 
And he looks at it and he's like this. He like slams it down. He says, you can't say this. I'm like, what are you doing? You can't say this. And honestly, like I had had some like reservations myself. But when I saw that, I was like, I should probably go to law school. It was like this wow. little small voice. Very cool. So 10 years from now, Andrew, you, you, you've amassed you, financially your sound. You, you don't have to worry about uh, money for you and your wife. And I say for you and your wife, because uh, I imagine given uh, your personality and the way you view the world, you want your kids to be independent. And so you're not going to hand them things mm-hmm. uh, like some people of means do. But, but you're financially uh, better than uh, most of humanity. You can, you can do whatever you want. How do you spend your time in that scenario? Yeah, I always want to kind of work or do something. If you rest, you kind of rust. Um, you know, kind of advisory roles maybe for companies like on boards. That'd be cool. Kind of half in, half out. I'd love to continue to teach. And in my head was like, hey, you know, probably not 10 years from now, but maybe 15 years from now or so, I could teach full time. Um, I actually really love connecting with students. I feel like I make, I make a genuine difference. Like, and according to like folks who graduated, kept in touch. One of them actually told me that he changed his job prospects. He was ex-military um, because of a project that I helped supervise. Actually, that's, that's pretty powerful, right? Say, so, hey, King, the way the direction you show me actually changed what I want to do with my life professionally. So if I can keep having those kinds of experiences and shape people, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Where are you living 15 years from now in that scenario? I don't know. Um, I like DC. Um, certainly until my kids go to college, we'd stay here. We, we have a nice home. I'm glad we moved before COVID hit since we're all at home all the time. Um, probably a city. My wife's a city girl. She grew up in Taipei, Taiwan. So I don't think we'd go into the country. Very cool. Uh, your business class that you teach at uh, Georgetown, what, what's one thing that Daniel and I could uh, pick up from that class that would be super valuable? And we could pay a little bit of tuition uh, before you <laughs> answer the class. Yeah. So it's a startup law class. It basically teaches folks how to start their own company, how to hire people, um, compensate people, how to protect their intellectual property, like trademarks, patents, all that stuff and how to negotiate to get money for funding, how to launch it off the ground. And um, so I would say, hey, guys, you know, your podcast, um, get a trademark for it. Your pod's ah. the one. Oh, you right on. marketing yourself. I mean, you know, you know, after this, we can talk. <laughs> how, do, uh, how, how do students get into your class? Do they, do they have to get accepted into Georgetown or GW? Yeah, so they're all Georgetown Business School students. And I was kind of worried about class enrollment because I, I pitched it as a new class. You have to have at least 15 students for the class to be accepted. I had about 42 my first um, spring semester in COVID. And I maxed out at the cap of 50 like three months before my class was held. I'd start teaching again next month. So it shows that there's demand. Um, and, you know, folks, I get pretty good student reviews despite COVID and online teaching. People tell me it's it's really made a difference in their lives. They actually learned something that's useful after graduation. Did they know that coming into the class, or did they learn? No, it's they a total out? new class, so I don't think there was a lot of expectations. But um, I just try to be very practical. I'm not a very academic teacher. I try not to use words longer than three syllables. 
I try to tell them stuff that they'll actually use in their lives. Very interesting. A lot of self-deprecating stories. Uh, you, Daniel and I have this thing about words. Daniel knows a lot of really big, complicated words, and I, I struggle the best. Uh, ah, it is the <laughs> yes, that's that's probably what it is. You think that's right, Daniel? You were born in Germany, dude. Yeah, but it doesn't make me German. <laughs> what are you? I'm American. <laughs> I'm American too. I mean, what is? Oh, your... you mean what's my background? Yeah, I uh, very waspy German, okay. German English. Yeah, but we, French, Irish. Yeah. We like we like to joke about the three syllable thing as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really do. I like your approach. I think that uh, when I was in college and professors would kind of talk like they weren't. It's almost like the students weren't really in the room and the professors were talking uh, back to themselves, trying to impress themselves in the mirror, kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that your approach could not be farther away from that, which is that of let me connect and build and shape people via, uh, you know, connection and uh, sometimes emotional connection. And, and I think that's the way that to, to be the most effective uh, educator. So wouldn't every, cool. wouldn't every student and every uh, parent of a student want that in their kid's professor? Yeah, right? absolutely. But it's hard with large lecture classes, right? Um, so if you have a class of like 80, 90 students, you're just trying to get through it, especially with this whole COVID thing. And I think Georgetown in particular has done a great job of repurposing lecture and giving us tools and seminars to like teach online, but it's really hard. Um, so I do office hours, for example, and a lot of like, you know, uh, future entrepreneurs come by to pitch startup ideas and I just give them free general advice. And, um, you know, no matter how technology sophisticated we get, we need connection with people, right? That's what your podcast is all about. That's what growing up is all about in school, in life, in the military, school of life. And you know, that's one thing that's going to be constant for our posterity. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, do you think we're better off having experienced uh, this pandemic? Or, or will we look back and say, wow. Say. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think there's more flexibility to work from home now, right? Which is great for working parents. Like a lot of traditional folks, like, hey, butts in seats nine to five or eight to 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Right. That's different. I think um, we lose connection, but we build it in other ways. So we'll see. Hopefully it doesn't last too long then. Yeah, I think the best, well, the base case probably says we feel like we've lost 12 to 18 months of our maturation as a society. Yeah. It may be taking a step or two back. Yeah. In yeah. some ways. Yeah. But it's good to hear that, you know, school's still happening. And people are still learning and yeah. uh, you're still teaching. So that, that's all great. Um, right. Yeah. It sounds like you can still be effective virtually, but uh, it's maybe not optimal virtually. It's a, in some ways it's better um, because uh, the chat room is actually an efficient way to get student comments. So like if I call on somebody in class, it takes airtime and only one person can do it. But if like I say, Hey guys, like, you know, just put in chat, thumbs up, thumbs down, or I do a Zoom poll and I'll have a couple of choices. And in 15 seconds, I can get like 30 responses. And I put them up on the screen and say, okay, so half the class thought this, a third thought this, a fourth thought that. And we'll talk mm -hmm. about, I'll call on people and say, why did you think that way? So in some ways it's actually better things, but I do miss the real-time feedback, being able to quickly scan the room and say, okay, they didn't get it. Instead, like I have to like remind myself every slide or two like I pivot back 
I go back to the chat room or say, okay, just catching up anybody there. It's okay. Um, I ran a negotiation session with six different negotiation groups over three hours and actually turned out really well. That I was, you know, that's pretty difficult to do virtually. Um, but it was kind of scripted beforehand. So everybody had their position and their topic and the issues list. Wow. Yeah, to, to stay on task with all those moving parts. And I know that when I'm on a, on a call and I'm not really relevant at that moment to the conversation, I, I check out more often than not and do something else. It's hard not to, right? And you look at people's eyes and you can see when they're reading something. I remember <laughs> one of my students who's actually very outspoken, was very participating in class. I remember I was uh, doing a, a lecture on employment law, which was actually had a lot of cool anecdotes. And I saw her, she was just looking at her phone like this and smiling like this. And I made it my mission to make her pay attention, look up, put her phone down. And that. I mean, I, I never called her out, but I, I, I leaned in, I started that. And then she put her phone down and it's like, Nice. That's it's such a, no. it's a funny, it's a funny approach you take, like both with that and also with the taxi driver uh, or the person from the taxi uh, who was angry at China. You know, you could take the antagonistic approach and say like, hey, stop looking at your phone or hey, uh, you're a racist. But instead, it's like, I don't know, there's more of a let's see how we can figure this out in a in a like togetherness kind of way. And, you know, yeah. I think I think that's a cool approach to take. Well, I, th I think you come at it clearly from an empathic perspective, but you're also doing it because I think you're more of a long-term thinker and long-term impact kind of guy. Do you come by that uh, through experience or, or is that innate? Yeah, so um, I would say I always try to see the big picture in things. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a dreamer, but I've always possessed the ability to see what's really important, right? To just step back. So I do my to-do list each day but I step back and see what's the direction people are going. If this happens, what happens here or there? What's A, B, and C? So, you know, I, I just kind of follow my gut with these things. Um, it's hard to say. Your, your gut's pretty, uh, well, when it's not experiencing uh, physical pain. Or, <laughs> oh. <laughs> or yeah, that hernia was no fair, but life's not fair. Yeah, that, that seems uh, awkward. Now, Andrew, I, I'm picking up that you probably know lots of people that would be good on our podcast. Is that fair to say? I think anybody would be delighted to speak with you. <laughs> have their heart bared out for posterity. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, thank you for being so forthcoming with your uh, everything. Yeah, no, I don't have a lot of layers. It takes too much effort to maintain a lot of different layers. What you see is what you get. That's great. And, that, and that, that subtle point that you made at the beginning of, you know, being a sponge versus turning and becoming expressive. Uh, yeah, I just that, that that's a great point. And, and I think that's one of the things that's going to stick with me uh, from this. So thanks for that. Yeah. And, and it goes back to the uh, mental health, right? Uh, being being a, a sponge that's not expressive is probably not great for your long term mental health. Yeah, that's right. Very cool. Well, Andrew, this has been a blast, man. I, I knew some of this, but I, I did, certainly didn't know most of it. And I'm really glad we got to learn about it. I know folks that uh, you and I work with will uh, are anxiously awaiting its release. It'll be out. Uh, I'm looking at our technical. Uh, we'll uh, see. That's the answer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we, that's cool. We, yeah. used to, we used to say three or four weeks and now we'll say, ah, we're not sure because we do have a few in the can that we haven't released yet. Right. So we but when, when we do, we'll reach out and, uh, and let you know and we'll share it with the world. So cool. thanks a lot for coming on, man. 
I thank you very much for having me. Have a great night. Thanks, Andrew. All righty. Bye. See you. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.